If I get a vegan or vegetarian to eat our product, there's not really much of an environmental benefit there because that person already is doing good by the planet. What we really need to do and what's going to make an impact is not getting everyone to turn vegan or vegetarian. That's a very idyllic view of the world. It's really to get like this 95% of people who want to eat more plant-based and the 95% of people who do eat meat, like myself, to eat less meat. And that is just ginormous impact that we can have From Qualtrics Studios, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. Ginormous impact. In today's conversation with Prime Roots founder Kim Lee, You'll hear just how big ginormous can be when the goal is to get to a healthier planet and healthier people by getting us to eat more plants. And you'll hear how Kim, who's an avid snowboarder, food aficionado, renaissance thinker, and business leader with a beginner's mind, wound up as the co-founder and CEO of a company on a mission to change the hearts, minds, and refrigerator share of every omnivore and flexitarian on the planet. Kim begins by reflecting on the perspective she got from traveling throughout her life. Yeah, I've been traveling my whole life. And between high school and college, it took two gap years. Back when gap years were also like very taboo. So taking one was crazy. Taking two was basically falling off the face of the earth. (laughs) I just wanted to discover myself and see the world. I was a competitive snowboarder. So I'd been traveling and chasing winners and traveling for competitions. And I actually took one of those two years to travel to Asia. I lived in Shanghai. I brushed up on Chinese. I just did a lot of random stuff, like everything from I built solar panels. I was taking this like environmental engineering class just to really explore like my passions and what I was interested in. And it was really through that experience that I was like, I know that I want to do something meaningful with my time. And that like most definitely has to intersect with the environment in some way. But it really solidified it just living in Shanghai when the AQI every day was like between 100 and 300. And that was a very humbling experience, just breathing in smoke. And I've been so privileged my whole life just having clean air, clean water and taking that for granted. And obviously now we know that anthropogenic climate change is real. And back then there was still a little bit of denial. And so I just knew very early on that that was something that I wanted to dedicate my life to was really focusing on climate change and focusing on the environment. And that those two years solidified that for me. Kim, if you could somehow wave a magic wand, would you wish that somehow people who, who maybe are on the, the more skeptical side of things like the climate conversation, that, that they could get out and be in a place like you got to be? Not that you would will bad air on anyone's lungs, but is there something that you think could prove an interesting unlock to people about perspectives that they might hold dear if they just were to have a different kind of experience for some amount of time like you got to do? Yes, I would never wish bad air or bad water on anyone, but I think it's a very humbling experience to see and feel the world burning. And I flew to New York last week and we flew over the fires in the Sierra region in California and we were at 35,000 feet and you could see these smoke plumes and it was like red. It was the most eerie sight that I've ever seen from an airplane. And I like teared up. It was just so vivid and I 
got to experience like breathing it in this weekend. And I think that if you live in a place like that, it really puts things into perspective and you can't deny that climate change is real. Talk to me about where food fits in. So you talked about clean air and clean water, but I know going back to your earliest of days, food has always been at the center of your household, your family, your culture, your passions. Talk a little about what were some of the early catalysts in your life around food and what led it to be such an important part of your life. Yeah, food has always been important. I love food, everything about it. Uh, My mom's a chef, so really couldn't escape food. Not that I wanted to. I love eating great food. I guess I was very naive for the majority of my life. I didn't realize how bad something so good could be. I enjoyed the experience of eating food. I traveled to eat food. My family traveled to eat food. And when I was in college, I actually learned about how big and how bad our food system really is. And one of the biggest issues that I saw in food is actually animal agriculture, how protein comes to our plate, how meat comes to our plate. Almost 20% of greenhouse gas emissions come from animal base proteins. And if you dig into it, it's like, okay, we hear that meat is so bad for the climate, but why is that? It's because to get one calorie from beef from a cow, you have to to feed that cow 30 calories and obviously give it a lot of time to grow and a lot of space. And it expends a lot of energy in just existing. And so I thought, hmm, I feel like a cow is pretty outdated technology to create meat. We can probably do this better. In the early days of One Beyond and Impossible, we're tinkering around. They were starting to launch their products. We said, huh, everyone's going after these ground beef burgers or ground meat products. What else can we do? Can we actually think about the building blocks of meat and how to make it better? And that's kind of how we got started, was just identifying the problem and saying, hey, there's this huge opportunity to innovate and make something that's just better, that's not all chemical that actually tastes good and that goes after all different types of products, not just one. I want to take you back, though, for a second before we get to the current day, because I think if I remember your story right, it's that you didn't really see having a career in food per se earlier on. Your parents had some restaurants, but it wasn't as if you thought, oh, that's my way in or, or that's how I'll go have an impact. Is that right? Yeah, I did not think I would be in the food industry. I actually wanted to start a PhD looking at the other big problem I see in food, which is monocultures and how we grow things in rows, and that's depleting our soil of its nutrients. And then I took a step back and I learned about the animal agriculture problem and said, oh, wait, why should I go after making plants better, like growing things not in a row or growing them in a row, but so it still replenishes the soil and that we have like actual arable land when we're using all of that arable land to feed to cows or to feed to animals. And so it felt like lower hanging fruit and the more important problem to fix the inefficiency of where those plants are being used rather than actually looking at the plants themselves. So diverted my my skills and my energy to actually tackling protein, which I think is the fundamental problem. And then talk about then how you were able to wrap that perspective or that knowledge that you gained into a career arc. What alchemy of experiences did you have while you were at the University of California at Berkeley that allowed you to say, okay, this is actually going to be the path forward. I've discovered a lot. I've traveled quite a bit. I've reflected on this and I could go 10 different directions with this passion around food and environment and sustainable agriculture and deflecting from monoculture. What was it that drew you down the specific path that you chose? This is just something that a lot of people omit from like the entrepreneurial stories, but I think a lot of it has to do with luck. 
and being in the right place at the right time. And to like put that in context, our journey was we started at Berkeley really looking at the science of what makes meat meat. How do we replicate that? How do we do that You know, without all of the chemicals, without using plants? And hence we found fungi. But that was the genesis of the ideation phase as being incubated in that academic environment. It just so happened that in that program, it was being sponsored by a plant-based company. And there, at the time, there was also investors that were following the progress of this program because we were in the inaugural class. And so both of those entities said, hey, we actually think this is a really good idea. Like You should all keep going at it. And so that's what we did continue to tinker around in my kitchen, continue to look at the market, develop the flavors, develop the products. And we decided that we wanted to basically put all of our time and energy into the company, into the idea. One thing led to another. We got into an accelerator called IndieBio, which has incubated a lot of companies in our space, ranging from like Memphis Meats to Perfect Day. And from there, going off on our own, getting our own facilities, building everything out, building the team out. It's been, we've been very lucky that it's been been a pretty linear journey to date. Obviously, there's like ups and downs every day, but nothing catastrophic to date. We came from a a personal leadership and and growth perspective. I know you're quite humble and you're talking about luck a fair bit. But if I go back to some of the experiences you had, maybe as a food science and technology chair at, at Cal, you're building relationships with companies, you're raising funds, you're organizing and running all kinds of technology platforms. As a course instructor, you're having to get smart on all these topics around environmental sustainability and environmental sciences and policy. You really were in some ways, by happenstance or on purpose, laying the track for, as you said, this kind of linear progression, but by collecting inputs and learnings from a range of different sources, fashioned a career by really paying attention to the details and getting your fingernails quite dirty. Yes, it is a blessing and a curse. I mean, there are very successful CEOs like Elon Musk, who still to this day, I think he's their lead rocket designer at SpaceX, who's still very much in the weeds. And so I I like to think of myself as an expert generalist. I go as deep as I need to go. I know a little bit about everything to be dangerous, but I'm definitely not the expert in anything. Got it. Well, talk to me then about the etymology, Prime Roots. I I think it, it previously had a different name. So maybe talk to me about how the organization was stood up and what the story is around the name change and where you are today. So we started as Terramino. And it's still our corporate name to this day. We just needed a name. And so Back in the day, it was really about proving that we could grow the koji, that we could make the koji turn into something that looked and tasted like, at the time, seafood. And that was really the focus. And so we needed something to incorporate. And so we said, okay, terra means earth and amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein. You've mashed it together. It sounds nice. (laughs) And so that was how it was born. We just needed a name at the time, which is a larger reason why we're prime roots today because we actually took the time to think about who do we want to be what do we want to name ourselves naming takes a long time and so (laughs) we we have a lot of articles published under our old company name i love it i don't think it would come as a surprise to any of our listeners that there's thousands of types of plants but when you look at plant-based meats they're basically just drawing in large part from soy 
from wheat and from peas. I think your premise was, what if it were possible to make meat alternatives with a different species than one of those three? So talk about the science here and what opportunity that gave you as a business. Yeah, I think first and foremost, looking at, we identified, like you said, Jesse, it's soy, wheat, and peas. I guess, why are people using that? Because these are like commodity crops. You know, there's a supply chain built around turning those into you know, veggie burgers that don't really taste like meat. Your morning stars, your bokas, they all use the same fundamental base technology. Those products were just never really made for meat eaters. They were the veggie products that were in the freezer for vegans and vegetarians. Plants are plants. And what makes meat meat? It's the texture, that like fibrousness, the taste, which is umami, the flavor, which is not plant-like. And that's one of the big problems with plant-based meats is that they have a lot of baggage. They have a lot of plant baggage. It tastes like peas. It tastes like soy. And so we really wanted to find something that actually looked the part, that actually would taste the part, and didn't have the baggage of plants. There's like the South Park episode where they mock about how like plant-based meats are made, black box, and it comes out as goo. I mean, that's kind of how it's done. And that black box, like people say you don't want to know how the sausage is made. You don't really want to know how the plant-based sausage is made either. It's a very similar, <laughs> very laborious process that's very heavily processed. So we wanted to kind of rethink fundamentally how that industry industry would make plant-based meats. And so that's why we use fungi, which is actually more closely related to animals than plants are. So it's a much better at being a, an animal replicate. And then obviously on the taste, the nutrition, the texture, like we hit all of those things just from the protein itself. So this has to be an educational adventure for people in your target. It seems like you're having to really educate and potentially change behaviors on things like taste and price and maybe even where to shop and how to cook and prepare. What are some of the behavioral trust falls, if you will, that you're asking people to take as they get used to the fungi-based meat? There's a lot of, I mean, eating something that doesn't come from an animal is obviously something that meat eaters and flexitarians like myself are getting more and more used to. And so I think the stat is like 94, 95% of Americans want to eat more plant-based. And there's so many documentaries. There's just a vast amount of knowledge and education being done in the media and by the industry as a whole about why plant-based is the way of the future. And so I'm really happy that we can be a part of where people are identifying that, oh, like these things may not be actually healthier for you. They are in some ways. And it's in food, there's nothing that's perfect. And so you Food and nutrition is also very personalized. And so I want people to be able to make their own decisions about how much meat they eat, what goes in their products, and get educated on that. What we do is obviously in the plant-based space, but we're using fungi, which is also something that in America is a term that people are getting more and more used to. But what we do is we actually grow the mycelium. You can think of it like the roots of mushrooms. So it doesn't taste like mushrooms, but it has that like fibrous texture and it's grown via fermentation, which is something that people are getting more and more used to. I mean, kombucha appears coast to coast. People are definitely getting more used to all of these concepts. And so we're excited to be able to, you know, let this newfound knowledge of plant-based fungi fermentation in the mainstream discourse and make a product that really is no compromises in the plant-based space. And are you balancing at this point the value proposition and the messaging and the story to the 
end consumer as well as to the retailer and to the channel? Or is where you're focused right now trying to just generate as much kind of consumer demand as you can so that then you have the knock-on effect of people demanding the product on shelf and online at retail? We're pretty maniacally focused on product and brand building right now. And so really getting our message out there and our brand out there. And then also just really focusing on the product and making the product better. So like more varieties, improving the product. So that's really been our main focus. And next, we're really thinking about the experience of where do people want to experience these products? How do they want to experience these products? And also, like, how do we reach the omnivores, flexitarians who want to do better in their purchases? How do we reach those consumers? What we need to do as a company is build something that's for people like us. People always assume that I'm vegan and I am not. This is really something that's built by meat eaters for meat eaters. And I would love for everyone to take that leap of faith and just try the products. Just trying it, I think, is like the most important part. There are so many different products out there and it's only one meal, but that one meal makes such a big difference. And if that one meal turns into one meal a week, turns into Meatless Monday, it turns into one meal a day, it's a huge impact. If you swap like one beef meal out per week, it's equivalent to like 350 miles driven in a car a year. I mean, that's just like one simple meal. That's one meal out of 27 meals you have in the whole week has such a huge impact. Yeah, the elasticity impact of these decisions to give ourselves less of what wrecks the environment and other species to produce, it's really, really cool to learn about that impact and even cooler to take action around it. So thank you for helping drive that. Talk about the frame of reference that you and the team have for Prime Roots as you regard the long term. Do you think of it as a food company? Do you think of it as an experience company? Do you think of it as an innovation platform? How do you think about it? I think it's all of the above. Sorry, that's a cop-out answer, but I really think it's all of the above because food is fundamentally something that brings people together and it is an experience. We're making something that is novel. And so we really want to be all of the above to be able to change the hearts, the minds, and the fridge share of how plant-based meats you know, can look, feel, really just be an easy swap. It's supposed to be easy. And the food has to be great and the experience has to be great to drive those connections and to be able to make the impact that we want. We really need to go and branch out and really get flexitarians and omnivores to be adopting of these products and to build and expand with that core consumer. Because for me, if I get a vegan or vegetarian to eat our product, there's not really much of an environmental benefit there because that person already is doing good by the planet. What we really need to do and what's going to make an impact is not getting everyone to turn vegan or vegetarian. That's a very idyllic view of the world. It's really to get like this 95% of people who want to eat more plant-based and the 95% of people who do eat meat, like myself, to eat less meat. And that is just ginormous impact that we can have. I love it. Kim, let me flip to some leadership perspectives from your vantage point. Talk to me about the role of brand and story in driving growth as a product company. You mentioned brand is one of the focus areas you have right now. What do you believe that a brand has to get right in order to help a company like yours grow and resonate with people? 
I think fundamentally brands, I think about them as people, like they tell a story. And I think that telling our story is something that is really core to what we're focusing on. We've been so focused for the past few years, just building the best products and the best product platform. We're now at a point where we're scaling up and we want to be able to tell our story to the world. The importance of that is that I started Prime Roots really because I wanted to fix my own problem, which is I want to eat meat. I love meat. I love the taste of it, but I want it to be actually like good for the planet. I want it to taste good and be better for me as well. And so I really want to just tell people that there are products out there that are made for them. And I eat meat and will probably still eat meat for the rest of my life. Building a brand is about storytelling. And I want to tell the story of how there are products that are for people and to empower people to make these changes. And Kim, I want to bank off a phrase you used earlier in describing yourself, the expert generalist. You're a multidisciplinary thinker and doer. Can you talk about the way that you use and apply multidisciplinary approaches at Prime Roots? Like, how does it come to life in the people that you hire, the processes that you follow, the work that you take on, and how you think about success? I use like all sides of my brain. And I think that the vast majority of, of our team uses all sides of our brains. I know it's a very simplistic way of looking at the brain, but whether you're on our marketing team or you're a scientist, we definitely try to get people to think about the end user and how that impacts them, but also just being very data-driven in what we do, running experiments and just all across the board, applying just a wide variety of perspectives as well as ways of doing things. And so our team is extremely diverse. We're technical. We're also non-technical, but bring a lot of creativity to the table. Our first employee ever was a designer. And so while we started and we were really tinkering and just really building up the science, like I really value the design. And I really value the creativity and just all different perspectives. Kim, over the course of the conversation, you've said a couple of things, whether it's being data-driven or whether it's the idea of putting yourself into new experiences to go see life that's maybe different from the the day-to-day -day one that you live, whether through travel or, or some other area, things that relate to developing empathy. And I'd love to just hear you talk about how you believe leaders can work to develop a keen sense of empathy around either the people they want to build for, the employees they're building with, the communities that they're part of, so that as they build their brand, as they build their product, as they build their company, they're doing it in a way that has long-term relevance and long-term resonance. Yeah, that's a really big question. Empathy is a skill and something that can be developed over time. There's a lot of schools of thought as it relates to leadership, like conscious leadership. And it's something that I work on every single day, being more mindful, being more empathetic, thinking about the impact that we're making and thinking about the people that are powering that impact and you know, the people around me. And the I think that a lot of people are questioning what they're doing today in light of the pandemic, in light of everything that's going on in the world and wanting to make an impact. I mean, I have a lot, had a lot of conversations with friends who are in other industries and they're like, I don't feel good about what I'm spending my time on. It's great to wake up every morning and be like, hey, I'm making an impact on the world. And there's a lot of room within the plant-based industry or sustainable industries to be more empathetic. And I think it's just something that is going to be continuing continually evolving over time. And Kim, what kind of people do you surround yourself with 
And I don't mean necessarily just skills in a functional way. I told the story of the designer both being a functional need, but also just a set of experiences and a way of thinking that you enjoyed collaborating with that person. I mean, what kind of traits or characteristics or essential qualities do you look for in teammates and collaborators that help you be at your best? A lot of builders, honestly. I love other people's successes and I want to help them be successful. I, I am very much an optimist through and through, like glasses always half full. And so I surround myself with our people who are smarter than me, people who've achieved a lot more than me and who are builders. I also love building. And I think that there's just something so special about building something from the ground up. And so I hang out with a lot of founders and learn from their experiences. And it's really interesting, no matter if you have a company of a thousand people or a company of five people, a lot of the challenges are really the same. And I think the most important thing just through and through a lot of what I've been thinking about is values. And so one of like the values for us and for me is being curious, always being curious about the world, always being curious about how you could do it another way and always being a little bit better, getting better, but not striving for ultimate perfection because sometimes speed is more important than getting it 100% right. Kim, I want to move to a lightning round now, if you're okay with that. I want to ask you a series of just rapid fire questions. Give me your first response, first instinct, all right? Give me a brand you admire, uh, one that you can't imagine living without. Ooh, I don't have too many items from them, but I love Patagonia as a brand. Their ethos, what they stand for. And even as they've scaled to be a large company, they give back. And it's something that I would love to do more of at Primaries as we scale. Yeah, their actions match and amplify their words to a pretty amazing extent. It's a great story, great company. Give me a favorite book or one that you've read recently that you enjoyed or that you like to recommend to others. I'm like halfway through a book called Ikigai. It's spelled I-K-I-G-A-I. And in Japanese, it is like the concept of being like fully fulfilled. And so it's the intersection of doing something that makes money, that you can like live off of doing something that you genuinely love and doing something that you're good at. And it's that bliss point in the middle, which is like the concept of Ikigai of being fully fulfilled. And it's been such a lovely book because I've never been able to find a word to describe how I feel about like working very long hours, working very hard. And people always ask me like, why do you do this? How do you do this? How do you just keep going? And it's because I feel extremely happy and it's not just a superficial happy. It's this like deeper layer of happy doing something every day that makes a big difference. And I think the word and the book is really describing a lot of what I'm feeling. So highly recommend that for anyone who's interested in the self-awareness journey, which I am very, very interested in. I want to bank off the values point you made about curiosity. What's something that you really, really want to learn more about? What's the next thing you either want to go discover more about or understand more of? What's next for you on the curiosity front personally? I recently started kite surfing. It's one of the fastest growing sports in the world. And I was a semi-competitive snowboarder. And I live in the Bay Area where we have great wind most of the year. And... I bring this up because it's actually very difficult to kite surf. Like using the wind, which changes a lot, and having a huge kite flying like 100 feet over you. I'm learning a lot about physics <laughs> and a lot of things in between. <laughs> yeah. Kim, you said earlier in this interview that you were an optimist. And, and anyone who refers to <laughs> our wind here as great wind, that is 
just a highly optimistic way to see uh, that climatological pattern in the Bay. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Let me just close by asking you, Kim, what do you think is your secret sauce? What's the unique blend of stuff that's distinctly you that helps make you magic? I think it has to do with another one of my values, which is being fearless. I really do believe that you've missed the shots that you don't take. And so whether it's like cold outreach or anything that's people find scary. I think I've just been well-trained just through living the entrepreneurial experience with my family, being maybe young and naive and just having not that much to lose. I prioritize action and impact over all else. So doing scary things is kind of part of that journey. Well, Kim, thank you so much for these perspectives. I loved hearing about uh, some of your story and, and the story of Prime Roots and all of the things that you're starting to do for the industry and for your team and for the planet more broadly and for all of us. So namaste from us here at Breakthrough Builders and look forward to continuing to see the story unfold. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Breakthrough Builders. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and a review. It really does help other people find us. And please tell your friends. Breakthrough Builders is a Qualtrics Studios original, presented and produced in collaboration with Studio Pod Media in San Francisco. The show is hosted and executive produced by me, Jesse Pierwolf. Our writer is Todd Bagnell. From Studio Pod Media, Deanna Morenci is our show coordinator. Editing and production by Katie Sunku Wood. Additional editing and music is provided by Notalab. Our designers are Baron Santiago and Vensuka Shindavajak. Website by Gregory Haydon. Photography by Christy Hemclock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, James Wadsworth, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundine. <laughs>